morning from Acts chapter 25, 1 to 12, Acts 25. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the city brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law or the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. I then am, if then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to, over to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And I'll pray. <clears throat> Lord, we look to you that you would um, speak to us and just have your work accomplished in our hearts for your namesake, for your glory. That we would love you and that we would walk with you in faith, in obedience, God, and that you would truly be exalted within us. Thank you that we can gather together, and thank you for your word and for your ministry to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you probably um, know that Patsy and I are the owners of a dog and a cat. Um, she owns the cat, or the cat owns us. I'm not sure how that works, but anyway... We tried to give away our dog this week. Um, the dog came back the next day. Um, it wasn't my, I would have preferred to give away the cat. But anyway, it, it, and the reason the dog came back, it was, you know, I like our dog. It's a good dog. Um, but it's, it's a little strong and hyper, and Patsy has a hard time with this dog um, because it wants to pull her and drag her around, and she has a hard time being in control. And the dog just wants to play. Nice disposition dog, just wants to play all the time. And so the people that, that took the dog, we said, try him out. That was a mistake. The dog was home the next day. And because they have a dog, and, the, and our dog would just not stop playing with their dog. And their dog got to where it didn't want to come out of their house because our dog would not leave their dog alone. It's a great dog. He lives to play, our dog does. Michael and Brooklyn have five chickens, and our dog likes to play with their chickens. <laughs> it's 
five times as much fun. <laughs> There's five, five chickens running away from him, and he thinks it's just wonderful. He loves to play with their chickens. Hasn't eaten one yet, but he loves to play with their chickens. So if you were to ask our dog, what is the purpose of life? He would say, play. <laughs> of course, I live to play. Our cat um, lives to eat. I think it's one word, is not meow, it's more. More, more. The cat sits on the back porch and looks through the back door all day long. More, more. And this cat is it just, it never hunts, it just eats. It's about a foot wide, and, and it just gets broader and broader, and it just, just wants to eat. Just so if you were to ask our cat, what is the purpose of life? That cat would easily say, food, eat more. When we ask each other, what is the purpose of life? Our students aren't here today, as you can see, because they're, um, um, they're all being punished. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> no, they're not. They're watching, right? You're watching, students? Um, a few of them have, have a cold, and so we didn't want them to expose everybody to their cold, and so Patsy thought they should all stay home, and um, Patsy has a runny nose. She's staying home, too. Um, so anyway... At 18, 19, 20 years old, maybe even all your life, but especially when you're just out of high school, you're asking the question, why am I here and what is my purpose, right? And the particulars of that are, can sometimes be difficult to work out. But the overarching purpose is no more complicated than it is for our dog, play, or for our cat, eat. There's one purpose that we all have. Now, I, would, I know that if, you know, if you've grown up in the church, you would say it is to know God and to glorify Him. And true enough, but if you were to ask Paul, what is the purpose for being on this planet? I think Paul would not have denied that answer, to know God and glorify Him. But Paul would be a little more particular, and he would say, I am here to bear witness of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. That is why I'm here, just to tell the world Jesus is risen from the dead. He is alive. That is why I am here. Now, we ended up last week with Paul still stuck in prison for two years. He's done nothing wrong, false trumped-up charges. And Felix, the governor, simply is looking for money from Paul. And so he keeps him in prison, hoping that he can get some money from him. Not really prison. It's more like a house arrest. But still, Paul can't go. And the guy is keeping him under custody. And, and so I, I made the point last week that, you know, this is extortion, and I don't think that God would have necessarily frowned on the church helping Paul out of that situation, on the principle that it's extortion and he could get his liberty if, if the money was paid. But it would have been wrong. And, and so as I've thought about why it is wrong, and I made mention of that last Sunday, the number one reason is it would be wrong for the church to pay money to get Paul out of church at a church, at, at, a, at a jail, is because it would be that Paul would be relying upon people and not God. And that would invalidate the message he preached, which is what? Jesus is alive. And because he's alive and risen from the dead, I can, I can trust him. And so he's preaching Christ is alive. If he takes money to get out of prison, does that validate or invalidate his message? I believe it would invalidate it. 
And then it would also, probably, if Paul had taken money to get out of, out of prison, it would have set up an expectation that future Christians, when they're incarcerated unjustly, would also pay up, thus putting more and more people at risk of wrongful um, imprisonment and delayed justice. And it would wrongly communicate to the church and to the secular world that Christians were, first of all, above all else, pragmatist and not theist. It's a huge thing. Maybe those aren't the best words to use. That's the only words I can think of. But so many times as Christians, we'll, we'll preach and preach and preach, Jesus is our life, Jesus is alive. But then when it comes down to it, we'll do whatever it takes to survive. And we're pragmatist first. And the reality that Christ is alive, that God lives, and He lives in us, and He can be trusted, is not as strong as that first knee-jerk reaction that's in all fallen humanity. I must do what it takes to survive. And many times we're pragmatists before we are theists. And so Paul, I don't know that he was thinking through all of it in that much detail. It just came down to this. I live to proclaim Jesus is alive. I, my trust, therefore, is in Him. And to take money to get out of prison would undermine the very message that I'm preaching. It came down to that. So Felix is gone, and now there's a new governor. His name is Festus. And Festus was not a bad guy as far as Roman rulers went. And in fact, he seems to show more political insight and prudence and, and fairness by far than what Felix did. So Festus no sooner becomes governor, and he's in Caesarea, and he goes down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem in elevation, and he wants to just make, make the introductions, and no sooner than he gets there than the Jews say, remember that guy, Paul? You probably don't. Felix left him. He's still in prison. We want him. Bring him down here so we can have another trial. And Festus was astute enough to know that if he did that, he would lose the upper hand. And he goes, no. He's in Caesarea. You want to see him again? You come to Caesarea. I'll put him on trial again. And so Paul has one more trial. It's trial after trial for the same trumped-up charges. No evidence whatsoever. No witnesses to anything that they were saying. And Paul once again has to defend himself. So he says in verse 8, while Paul was, and Paul said in his own defense, three things again, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. I am innocent. Now, that's just not, that is not just a curious fact on Paul's life. It's imperative. It's very, very important. Unlike other major world religions, not only is our founder Jesus spotless and blemished, unblemished, but so were those early apostles when it came to their faith in Christ and living out that faith. You can't say that about the prophet Muhammad. He was far from unblemished. You can't say that about Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian science movement. You can't say that about Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. There is no way those people could make the claim of innocence and integrity and character that Paul was making the claim to. It's very significant. And so clearly the gospel has revolutionized this man's life and he is living a blameless life before God. That is very significant. 
And Paul said, I'm standing here. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. You forced me to go to Jerusalem. Then you forced me to appeal to Caesar. And to Caesar, he had to go. The Romans were sticklers, as, as were the Jews, supposedly sticklers about keeping the law. They just weren't sticklers when it came to Paul. And, and so Festus has no choice but to say, if you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you have to go. And he's probably thinking, good for me, good riddance. This is a problem I'm not going to have to deal with. But it doesn't take him very long, and he realizes, this makes my problem worse. Because I've got to tell Caesar why I'm sending a Roman prisoner to him in chains. And there's, and there's nothing the man has done wrong. So that's going to make, make Festus get in trouble with, with the emperor when he's sending, shipping a Roman citizen halfway across the Roman Empire for no reason, in chains. And so Festus is going, what am I going to do? I've got a problem. Well, here show up, verse 13, King Agrippa and, and Bernice, his sister. And they arrive at Caesarea, and they paid their respects to Festus. Now, King Agrippa was not king over Judea. His father had been, King Agrippa I, and the pre previous Herods had been. But this is another person in the line of the Herod family, King Agrippa II, and he, he has a very small territory that he's king over, and it did not include Judea. But he goes to Caesarea, and he's hanging out with Festus, and they spend several days together. Festus is going, you could really help me, because you are clearly an expert in all things Jewish, and I am not. And he says, and I'm, I've got a big problem. I have to send a prisoner to, to, the, to the emperor, and I have no idea what charges to write up because the guy has done nothing wrong. And he makes this point, bring it down to verse 18 of chapter 25, and when, his, his, when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. None of them are, 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 really, are, none of them are even crimes. Verse 19, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. So he knows what the issue is, and he knows it's not worthy of death, it's not worthy of being incarcerated, and he doesn't know what to do with it. But also this reveals, Festus thinks this is a, what, what Paul is preaching is just a joke. A certain dead man, he doesn't think he's alive, a certain dead man, Jesus, that Paul is asserting to be alive. That makes him crazy. That doesn't make him a criminal. And in Festus's mind. And so Festus is going, what do I do with this? And Agrippa goes, I'd like to hear him. And Festus is going, great, hoping you were going to say that. And so verse 13, 23. So on the next day, when Agrippa had come together with Bernice amid great pomp, and had entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So this is a big deal. Now, Paul's had to defend himself several times now, but never with an audience like this. And every other time he's had to defend himself, he's had Jews standing there shouting him down and trying to beat him up. Now it's just Paul and this whole crowd of the most prominent people in the area. You've got a king. You've got a queen, you've got a governor, 
You've got five commanders. Each of them was in charge of a thousand soldiers. And you've got all the prominent people of the city, and it's just Paul. And this is the thing. It's already been decided Paul is going to Rome. So nothing Paul says is going to change that. So he can't get out of this predicament. He's not looking to be released. Paul knows Jesus wants him to go to Rome. So he doesn't see this as another chance to defend himself so that he can get released. He sees this as an opportunity to what? Our main purpose, to bear witness that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And Paul goes, that's why I'm here. And that's why because they all need to hear it. That's all this is about. It's not about Paul defending himself. It's not about Paul trying to get out of this situation. He is going to Caesar. That is not going to change. So Paul's going, great. <laughs> I may still have chains on, but I, I know why I'm here. I'm here once again, as in every other situation of life, is to bear witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, what do we know about King Agrippa, Agrippa II? His full name was Marcus Julius Agrippa II. He was the son of Herod Agrippa. He was the grandson of Aristobulus and the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who tried to destroy the baby Jesus. And then one of his sons, Herod Antipas, um, um, and, uh, who was Agrippa II's great uncle, beheaded John the Baptist and, and had Jesus stand on trial before his crucifixion. And then Agrippa II's father, Agrippa I, had executed James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Now, he's also the guy that back in chapter 12 of Acts, where he's standing on his, uh, at, his, at his rostrum, and, and he started to speak to the people, and all the people go, the voice of a God and not of a man. You remember? And an angel struck him dead, and, and the worms ate him up. That was this guy's dad. Okay? So this, he's got a long history of people who have had direct confrontations with Jesus and his disciples. And it hasn't gone well for any of them. And I'm not talking about Jesus or his disciples. I'm talking about these Herods. Okay? And, so this, this, and so this guy is not stupid, Herod Agrippa II. He knows his family history. He knows how many encounters they've had with Christians, with Jesus, and the murders that have taken place. He knows his own father was struck down by God because he's, he took it to heart that the people were saying the voice of a, of a God and not of a man. Herod Agrippa II would have taken the throne of his father right then except he was too young. And so that's why he doesn't become the king of Judea. He was too young. He was just a late teenager when his father died. And so Caesar refused to make him king. And so Caesar set up these other governors, set up Felix, and then set up Festus, because they were waiting for Agrippa to get old enough that he could take over his father's original territory. So they gave him a smaller territory, Caesar did, waiting for him to get older so they could give him more territory. So even though his territory is small, and he's not the king of Judea, there's one privilege he's been given that all the other kings of Judea had. And that was the power to appoint and remove high priests. And that explains why Ananias is not in this chapter. Remember, Ananias has been in the previous chapters. Get him, we want Paul dead. He's not here in chapter 25. Because Herod Agrippa has dismissed him. 
And so this is, it's all very intriguing here. Herod Agrippa II had two sisters, Bernice and, um, and what was the other one? Drusilla. Drusilla appeared in chapter 24. She was the wife of Felix. That was one of Herod Agrippa II's sister. That was his little baby sister. And now in chapter 5, he shows up with Drusilla, who is his next sister in line. He's the oldest, and then Drusilla, and then um, Bernice. Well, here Drusilla, she'd been married to another king. He died. So she promptly moved in with her brother. And I mean moved in with her brother. And so this is an incestuous relationship between brother and sister, and everybody knew it. And as bad as Rome was, apparently, because later she's going to take up with Titus, who will become emperor in the future. And he wanted to marry her, and even the Romans were going, no, you can't marry her, because she used to be with her brother. And they surprisingly insisted that Titus not marry this woman because of her immoral background. So this is the people that he has to stand before, Paul does. This guy, King Agrippa II, has had all this family history with Jesus and his, and his disciples. They have murdered people left and right, and has not fared well for them. He is an expert in all things Jewish, and that included Christianity. And Paul, and he's an immoral man, but he's not as corrupt as these others. He's more reasonable. In fact, people said of all the line of the Herods, this was the best one, Herod Agrippa II. And Paul's going... This is a good day for me. That I get not because he's going to be released, but because he, he knew this guy would hear him out and not interrupt him. And so, but Paul's going, who could have orchestrated this? He says, he says, I would give my right arm on any day to have the opportunity to on one afternoon witness to a governor, a king, a queen five Roman centurions and all the prominent city people, and I'm the only guy in the room talking, and they're giving me a chance without interruption. This is a good day. And it all happened because God moved on Paul's heart to take an offering and bring it to Jerusalem for those that are in need. And then the Jerusalem elders said, Paul, you know, we need to help you out with your reputation, so we recommend that you go to the temple with four guys under a vow and you pay their expenses. And their good intentions resulted in Paul landing in prison, and yet it's God's orchestrating it all. And Paul knows, my life is not to be free. My life is not to be a preacher that can just go wherever there's a need. My life, my, my reason for living is to proclaim Jesus alive from the dead. And that has nothing to do with circumstances. And if we could just get that through our heads, that it doesn't matter what our circumstances are. We may not feel that our gifts are being used. We may not feel that our training and education is being used. We may not feel that our potential is being tapped. It doesn't matter. The one reason we are here as believers in Jesus Christ is to bear witness that Christ is alive, risen from the dead. That's why we're here. So Paul goes, opportunity. Not saying, how many more years am I going to have to sit here? How many more years am I going to be falsely incarcerated, falsely accused? He goes, I'm not here to defend myself. I'm here to proclaim Christ.
So chapter 26 is where Paul gets his opportunity to make this tremendous proclamation. And Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak, to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all these things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. For they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest set of sect of our religion. And Agrippa would have been very familiar with what that meant. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. What is the hope he's talking about? Verse 8, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? And so Paul just kind of jumps to it. I mean, you can fill in the blank. For this hope, I am on trial today. And then he doesn't say for the hope of the resurrection. He just jumps. Why does this bother you? What is the issue here? What is the hard thing in believing that God can raise the dead? That's not a hard thing to believe. If you believe God, there is a God. If you believe there is a God. It is not incredible to believe that God can raise the dead. Because God can do that. He's God. If he can create life, he can certainly raise the dead. And he goes, and so Paul is just speaking in terms of the reasonableness of our faith. It is not an unreasonable faith. That God, if there is a God, and something like still 98% of the people in the world that's on this planet believe there is a God, then It is not ironical, it is not impossible, it is not (coughs) inconsistent, it is not unreasonable to believe that God, who is, can raise the dead. What's the problem? And so then Paul says, so see, he starts out this whole, it's not a defense, but but he's witnessing. And so truly the core of his witness, the foundation of his witness is that God has raised Jesus, his son, from the dead. So then he's going to go into his his testimony. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And and, And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. And not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison and have, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in, in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being fiercely enraged at them, I kept persecuting them even to foreign cities. And while thus engaged, as I was journeying to, to, to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. They saw it too. And when we had all fallen to the ground, that's a new ingredient that he hasn't told us before. They all fell to the ground because they all saw the light. I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? It is, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was a sharp pointed stick that the man that held the plow with an ox in front of it would use when that ox tried to not, you know, he'd kick back at the ox. The guy that had held the plow had a pointed stick and he'd just stick that, that stick right into the ox's hoof. And sometimes they would put a, a, a wooden bar across the, across the plow with spikes in it. So every time that thing kicked, it would just, yeah, he's kicking against the goats. And Jesus is saying, life's not going well for you because you're kicking against the goats. Everything in life is pointing to my resurrection and you're persecuting me by persecuting my people. Verse 15, and I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appointed you, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and as a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes, get this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness and to light from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So that's quite the list there of things that, are, that are, happen when a person places their faith or in the process of a person placing their faith in Christ. Their eyes have been opened. They turn from darkness to light. They turn from the dominion of Satan to God. They receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance, and it is all through faith in Jesus Christ. Simple as that. They believe in Jesus, and God accomplishes all this. Consequently, verse 19, Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. It's a matter of obedience. But kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some of the Jews seized me in the temple. Why? Because I was preaching Jesus Christ. For this reason, they seized me. Not because I defiled the temple, not because I was doing anything illegal, but simply because I was preaching, Jesus has risen from the dead. For this reason, some of the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place that Christ, the Messiah, was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Well, now, Festus is going, that's enough. I don't think he's exasperated. I think it's just blowing his mind what he's hearing. Paul is done. He starts with the resurrection. He concludes with the resurrection. He says, this is why I'm in jail. I've done nothing more than preach that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that's why I'm standing in prison. That's why two, my, two years of my life have gone by. For doing nothing more than telling people that Jesus is alive from the dead. That's the problem here. And obviously it's not going to change. Paul's going to keep on doing what he's been doing. And so then Festus, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind! Because why? 
because the Romans don't believe in resurrection, not of the body. They believed the spirit would be raised, but they didn't believe the body would be raised. You're out of your mind. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Man, I tell you, Paul was ready for that. And he says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. This is not insanity. This is truth, the most sober kind of truth. For the king knows, Agrippa knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Well, he knows he can't answer that. So he answers, him for, answers it for him. I know that you do. I don't know how Paul knew this, but Agrippa has a reputation of being a man who believes what the Jews believe. And, he, and apparently he does. He believes the Old Testament scriptures. He believes the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Do you believe the prophets? Probably a bit of a pause. And Paul says, let me answer that for you. I know that you do. And Agrippa doesn't deny it. But he does say this, verse 28. And Agrippa replied to Paul, he's probably squirming and feeling a little uncomfortable. All the eyes in the room are on him. Is this guy going to come out and confess himself as a believer, as a Christian? And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian? Now it's probably not saying, Paul, man, if we just had five more minutes together, I'd be, I'd be praying to become a Christian. He's probably saying, <laughs> uncomfortably, <laughs> you think you can just with a few words persuade me to become a Christian. It isn't interesting Paul never called himself a Christian. See, this guy knows what's going on. He knows who these followers of Christ are. He knows what this sect supposedly called the way is. See, Agrippa calls Paul a Christian. He knows exactly what Paul's asking of him. And he's squirming now. You think in a short one conversation... No, he, see, he's not about to acknowledge faith in Christ, at least in this audience. And to our knowledge, he never did. And then Paul makes this amazing statement. I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, and the auditorium was packed, that all who hear me this day might become as I am except for these chains. That's an amazing statement. Paul's saying, I have nothing to be embarrassed about. I have nothing to be ashamed of. You can put me in jail for something I haven't done, and it's not going to humiliate me. It's not going to embarrass me. I'm not afraid of what those churches that support me are thinking about, because I'm in prison. He goes, I wish you were like me except for these chains. I didn't, you know, I didn't give a lot of thought to this, and I, I've started reading this book um, this week, a book that one of our church members gave me who's, who's authored it, made a great point that, that until really the American Revolution, people didn't view everyone as equal. There has always been a justice for the royalty, and then everybody else got maybe justice on a good day. 
But there was not any, a vision, a view of equality among all persons. And that's the way the world has run going back thousands of years. And so when Paul is standing there as this Jew in, in chains, he would not have been viewed highly by the audience he was standing in front of. And there would have been the temptation for them to take great offense at Paul saying, I wish you were like me. See, that had to rile him. But Paul so clear, he says, I'm not talking about my circumstances. I'm not talking about being a prisoner. I wouldn't want anybody to be a prisoner, Paul's saying. But I do wish. Because see, this truth that I'm proclaiming is for all men. Kings and queens and governors and military commanders and the most prominent, this is for them, just as it is for everybody else. There's not one truth for the elect, not one truth for the, for the elite, and another truth for everybody else. There is one truth. And Paul's saying it applies to all of us. It's like he could have said to Agrippa, you came in here with a bunch of pomp. I remember it. Bands playing, everybody's standing. And he says, this is nothing to the pomp you're going to see when we all stand before God. And we will. We will. You think you're big stuff right now. But the truth that I'm sharing with you is for all mankind, small and great alike. And he says that, small and great alike. And you think that you're something big now, and you think you can just choose and pick, you know, pick and choose what you want, live your life the way you want, because you think your life is about you. But life is about Jesus Christ. And we must all deal with the one central truth. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And everything centers on that. That is why we are here. And if you don't deal with that now, Paul's saying, you will deal with it. Because if Christ is truly alive, and he is, and you don't recognize him by faith now for who he is, and receive by faith that gift of eternal life that he's offered to us, then you will stand before him in all his pomp, where every knee bows, and every tongue shall confess. And that won't be a good day. I'm not insane. What I'm teaching is not secret knowledge. It is not private knowledge. It is not extreme. It is not illogical. And it is not undesirable. I wish that all men were as I am. It is not prejudicial. It is a gospel equally for all. There's not one justice and truth for Romans and royalty and free and men and another for, all, for those who are none of those things. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So verse 30, Paul apparently is led out of the room. And the king arose, and when he rises, everyone rises. And the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, they all stood. And when they had drawn aside the king and the governor... They began to talking to one another and said, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. One more proclamation to Paul's innocence. The Jews even recognized his innocence. 
Felix recognizes innocence. Festus recognizes the innocence. Agrippa II now is recognizing his innocence. Paul is not going to Rome as a guilty man. He's going to Rome as a man who is not getting what he deserves. Isn't it interesting, Paul said early on in this chapter, if I have done something deserving death, I am willing to die. You know, that doesn't mean anything if you've done something deserving death. In, a, in this sense, if, if your child said to you, if I deserve to be spanked, then I will be spanked. And you would go, thanks for nothing. <laughs> that means nothing to me. You deserve to get spanked. Don't you think you're going to get out of it because you said, I will accept the spanking willingly. Go ahead and spank me. It's what I deserve. And you're going, oh, what an awesome child. How can I spank that child? And I'd go, smart aleck. <laughs> and you spank them, right? And Jesus is going, if I deserve to die, remember Paul, if I deserve to die, I will die. Why is that thrown in there? Because once again, we're seeing that Paul understands his purpose in life is not to live. It is not to preserve life. It is not to get out of jail. It's not to keep himself from dying. See, that's most, most Christians. I mean, again, we're living in such crazy times that most Christians think we live to keep ourselves from getting a sickness. We live to keep ourselves from going to the hospital. We live to keep ourselves healthy. We think life is good health. We think life, and you can fill in the blank. And Paul says, if I've done something worthy of dying, and that is the strongest motivation in every heart is that motivation of self-preservation. Paul says, then I'll die. See, there's something different about this man. See, he's going, I am no longer most strongly motivated to keep myself alive. If I deserve to die, you're not going to see me fighting. And he didn't. We don't know. We weren't there. It wasn't recorded for us when Paul was actually killed. He, his head was cut off. Peter, he was crucified upside down. But this we do know. All through the centuries, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs and other testimonies like that. As Christians have been led to their deaths, they have been led like lambs to the slaughter. Not fighting, not kicking, because their motivation for life changed. And it's no longer, I, my greatest motivation is to keep myself alive. Something changed, fundamentally. And they go, as Paul said in Philippians, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So if I have to die, why would I fight that? Because that's gain. Something has fundamentally altered the way this man thinks and acts, everything about him. Jesus is alive. And he goes, now I know why I'm here, why I'm alive. And that is to proclaim Christ is alive. No matter what that would cost me, because it's the truth. And I want my life to be lived under the loving control of his love for me and with the end result that he is pleased and honored and glorified. What a life. To be able to live where circumstances are not 
dictating everything, every reaction, but to live where the reality of Christ risen from the dead is the one thing that grips us all. Not the truth of that, per se, but the reality of Christ himself, who is alive, who is governing all aspects of our thinking, our decisions, and our actions. I'll close this in prayer. God, I do thank you again for your word, and thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you for showing us, God, through men like Paul, why we are here. And that is simply to bear witness of Jesus, who is risen from the dead. I pray that we would, God. We're not adequate for this, but you are. And, and we would just present ourselves to you, God, for you to, to work in us in every moment that our reactions would be your actions. Our responses to all that's going on in life, God, would be you living through us. And that you would receive the glory and honor. There could be no higher privilege that you've given us than to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would, God, in all things, not just with our mouths, but also with our decisions, that everything is governed, Lord, by that one surpassing truth, that one foundational truth, that Jesus is alive. In Christ's name, amen.